Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. The podcast is on iTunes and on Stitcher, and I'd be grateful if you were to rate and review if you had a chance. This is the second of two episodes which I'm doing on the culturally iconic, the historically important Marbo cases before the High Court. I've been lucky enough to speak to Greg McIntyre, who was involved throughout the Marbo litigation. And last time he took me through some of the key events around the conception of the litigation and its early phases up to the decision of the High Court in Marbo Number 1. That was the case which dealt with Queensland legislation which purported to extinguish any native title which might have survived European settlement in the Murray Islands. And the High Court in Mabo Number 1 found that because of the Racial Discrimination Act and the fact that this was discriminatory and impermissible legislation, the Racial Discrimination Act had the effect of prevailing over that Queensland legislation, the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act. The legislation didn't have the effect as a result that it purported to. It didn't extinguish native title and therefore the Marbo litigation could proceed. Greg McIntyre talked also about the work that he and the others involved had been doing on preparing for and conducting uh, hearings before Justice Moynihan of the Queensland Supreme Court. It was Justice Moynihan who had been tasked by the High Court to take the evidence necessary to determine this question of whether native title had survived in the Murray Islands. So in this episode, we're very much going to focus on those hearings, on the findings of Justice Moynihan after that evidence had been taken and the way in which those pieces of evidence, that factual record, was dealt with by the High Court in ultimately deciding in Marbo Number 2 that indeed native title had survived European settlement that Australia wasn't a terra nullius, a land uh, without civilised laws or customs which could survive settlement. Rather, there were some customs which were capable of surviving and had survived white settlement, and Indigenous people in some instances continued to enjoy a native title. That's a famous finding, of course, and... It's fascinating to hear some of the background, the long background of what led up to that decision. I also asked Greg to talk about his feelings about native title as it now operates where the Mabo decision has taken us. It's a really interesting conversation and I started with a discussion about the hearings before Justice Moynihan. been five weeks of evidence at that point that's all before mm. just to justice moynihan and then you go back for more is that right 
That, that's right, yes. We, um, and during that period, we'd had um, hundreds of objections on the ground of hearsay. Um, so the whole of that five weeks um, was taken up with evidence of Eddie Marbo in chief um, and, yes, essentially in chief uh, and subject to constant objections on the ground of hearsay. I mean, it was unsurprising because clearly what he was, the evidence he was giving clearly was hearsay. It was, he was telling us what his grandfather had told him about the, the land which belonged to the Mabo family and, and how the boundaries were created by the ancestors. Um, but the, the real issue was whether it fitted with any, any of the exceptions to the hearsay rule. Um, and so we eventually went back to a single judge of the High Court to try and resolve that issue. Um, we thought that we might... Well, our, our initial approach was to suggest to a sing, the single judge, who I think from, from memory was Justice Dean, um, that we, we should argue for a traditional law exception to the hearsay rule. He wasn't convinced that it was the role of the High Court to do that and sent us back to the Supreme Court Justice, Justice Moynihan, saying, well, he's there to determine the facts. He can rule on the, on the evidence using all the rules of evidence which are available to him. Uh, and we then realised that we had several exceptions to the hearsay rule and so we might need to get a computer to work out all the permutations of, of the arguments. Um, but that, that was all... Um, forestalled by, fortunately, I think, in the long run, by Queensland saying, agreeing that they would allow the evidence to be led, um, their objections would be noted, and then we could argue it at the end, which we thought was the most desirable result. We were, we were very concerned prior to that that Justice Moynihan was going to rule the, all of the evidence out, we'd have no evidence. Um, once we got to the point where we, it was agreed that the evidence would be recorded. We then knew, well, we have it on record, and if we don't agree with the view of Justice Moynihan on the admissibility of the evidence at the end, then, of course, that can be subject of an appeal to the High Court. As it turns out, after I'd prepared this lengthy uh, written submission on all the exceptions to the hearsay rule, um, Justice Moynihan took the view that it was all within the reputation exception uh, and allowed it all in. Uh, so that was, we overcame that ultimately um, and it all went to the High Court. In the course of those hearings before Justice Moynihan, how, um, how uh, hard fought was the evidence given by the Torres Strait Islanders? Was there um, a, a substantial cross-examination of your witnesses? Uh, yes. Um, the a lot there was a lot of uh, scepticism of their evidence. Uh, there was a I remember one of the things um, Margaret White, who's recently um, um, headed up the commission into the Northern Territory um, juvenile um, justice system. Um, she was counsel for Queensland when we were on Murray Island, First Island, and uh, she. she had some difficulty, well, her cross-examination questions suggested that they didn't accept that the Murray Islanders were living in accordance with 
with Murray Island tradition and the and followed the god Marlow who, who created the laws of trespass in accordance with Murray Island tradition because at the same time many of them were Christians. And one of our plaintiffs, Dave Passy, was a an Anglican priest. And so there was a line of of, uh, of attack, if you like, in the cross examination on that front. Uh, the the other thing which Queensland did, which we think um, backfired on them um, and showed a misunderstanding of the coast we were running, was that they they sought to call other islanders to say that they had a better claim to some of the lands than that which Mar- Eddie Marbo or Dave Passy or James Rice were claiming. Um, we our view was that that really just proved the existence of traditional laws and customs and the fact that that the Murray Islanders uh, were very fiercely fighting, very fiercely believing in their traditional laws and customs and to the point of them litigating about it constantly and uh, and disputing about it, and not only about inheritances but about boundaries and a whole range of issues. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I'd rather serve to underline that there's an elaborate sort of um, system still in existence. That's right. Mm. It's a bit over a year in which you're you're waiting then for for a de- decision. Are you you're still at that point living up in Cairns? Are you and uh, and no, uh, no. By then I had moved to Perth. I I uh, had to file through I think five different jobs um so by the time by 1988 uh, i moved from cairns to perth um and i had a couple of years at the principal legal office of the aboriginal legal service and then by the time we argued the case in 1992 i was working at course from course so their name appears on the report Justice Moynihan and you spent time up in the Murray Islands. Um, how long were you up um, in the Murray, Murray Islands, and what was that experience uh, like? The the evidence on Murray Island went for um, three or four days, and then we had a couple of days on Thursday Island. I think that was really the turning point. Um, in the impression we had of Justice Moynihan up until that point was that he was highly sceptical of our case uh, and of the people. Um, and, of course, those the, the people... Well, it was, it was only Eddie Marbo, actually, who gave evidence in Brisbane. Um, we were feeling that we weren't winning the judge over while we were in Brisbane. Um, but once we got up to Murray Island and, um, as I often said when he put on his floppy hat uh, and and actually saw how people were living. Um, he couldn't fail but to see that they were uh, continuing a traditional lifestyle. Um, so we, he gave evidence in the community hall, which was decked out in flowers and murals and flowered tablecloths. And, um, uh, he planted a tree. Um, we went, we managed convincing to hop on a boat and go across to uh, Dawar Island, which is one of the three islands in the group. Uh, and by the time we left Murray Island, we thought, well, he at least under, had a had a uh, an empathetic understanding of what our case was about. Um, so 
it, it, that it, it, uh, I then, because I was the principal legal officer of the Aboriginal Legal Service, I had to return to Perth to carry out those duties and unfortunately had to abandon Brian Ken Cohen uh, to complete the evidence. He decided that he needed to call much more evidence than I had expected and so he he called another seven weeks of evidence in my absence, which was unfortunate. It turned out that way because it was a great physical and emotional drain on him. Um, and there were a number of issues between members of the Mabo family and others that had that he called called evidence to contradict. Brian and I uh, did all the trial um, evidence. Um, well, Brian did most of it, and I did. I worked with him for five weeks. Um, and but Barbara and Ron were still um, engaged, but neither of them were trial lawyers. And they said to us, "Well, look," when, and we had we were on legal aid, so we had limited funds. And they said, "Look, we're not trial lawyers. You two go and do that, and uh, we'll come back in as necessary." Um, Barbara never really did have any further involvement in that she ended up on the veterans review board and and retired brian ron um was always was somebody that we rang and spoke to whenever we were having um particularly difficult issues um during the trial and a couple of times he flew up from melbourne to brisbane and and um argued points before justice moynihan um yeah so then when when it came back to uh, the hearing in the High Court, the team was was uh, Ron, Brian, and myself. When Justice Moynihan eventually handed down his findings, they were very lengthy. However, they were summarised by Justices Dean and Gordon in their judgment in Mabe Number Two as showing that the Merriam people, that is the people on the Murray Islands uh, who were raising these claims, lived in an organised community which recognised individual and family rights of possession, occupation and exploitation of identified areas of land. Clearly enough there was a custom here about the way in which land was dealt with. So that was one finding which was useful to the plaintiffs in Mabo. However, for Eddie Mabo, the news wasn't so good. Justice Moynihan made adverse findings about Eddie Mabo's specific claims of an entitlement under those customs to the land which he was seeking to have recognised as land which he owned. It sounds as though it went so far as recognising that, yes, there was a, a customary system. Um, it mm. was perhaps l um, less clear on concluding that this was, quote, unquote, law um, and, mm. and a, a really firm um, system along the lines of, you know, what we might expect from a from a Western legal system. Um, so it, it was sort of, it sounds like it was one sort of equivocal and two, um, it was adverse to Eddie Marbo. So, um, that must have mm. been um, something to digest. Yes, and it was it was quite a blow for Eddie. Um, we, of course, um, well, right up to the to the final argument, we were running a case for five plaintiffs um, based on a 
on a communal system. Um, and so we, we were seeking to prove the particular claims of Eddie Mabo, of James Rice, of David and Sam Passi, who are brothers, um, and Saluia Mabo Sully, who was Eddie's aunt. So um, that was always a bit of a tension. And as you say, the judge um, didn't find Eddie Mabo a credible witness and found um, that he wasn't adopted into the Mabo family even um, on the basis of some state, a couple of state government documentary records. Um, uh, yeah, so we ended up with a finding from uh, Justice Moynihan, as you say, which did, say, did accept that there was a general system of village-owned lands and garden lands among the Murray Islanders, um, but in relation to the plaintiffs, he found against Eddie Marbo's claims to inherit the Marbo lands, uh, and he found that uh, Dave, Dave Passy had a, a, a right to build a house with the permission of his older brother Sam. That was his property right, which I've often described as an inchoate in future right in possession. Um, and in terms of James Rice, the only thing he said was, and the same applies to me, as I recall, we really couldn't work out what any of that meant. So we're, we're rather bereft of any findings supporting our individual plaintiffs, um, which the High Court uh, noticed as well. So with Justice Moynihan's findings in hand, it was off to the High Court. I asked Greg McIntyre about the arrangements for argument and what his impression was as the argument unfolded over four days in May 1991. The way it worked was that we, of course, um, proceeded as a team. And what I had had imagined was that I was going to appear as junior counsel with Ron Ron as lead counsel and Brian as, as um, a junior as well. Um, but the Victorian Bar said that uh, Ron couldn't appear with me as his junior because I was practising in the amalgam in Western Australia. I was still practising as a barrister and solicitor. So the, the Victorian Bar at that stage had a policy that they could only have as juniors people who were at the independent bar. So that, that's, that's how the quirk how it ended up that um, I appeared separately for Eddie Marbo. Um, uh, and I said, well, I wanted to appear as counsel, and, and uh, that was how we arranged it on the basis that there was not a lot to be said for Eddie Marbo individually because of the findings of Moynihan against his particular um, claims. So as you see from the transcript, uh, Ron had finished the argument and the Chief Justice turned to the state of Queensland and uh, and I think Sir Jared Brennan leant over to him and said, oh, I think Mr McIntyre is appearing for Mr Marbo. <laughs> uh, and so they called on me and I, of course, adopted Ron's submissions because we'd prepared them together. Um, and the only thing I could say about Eddie was, well, if we were successful in the communal claims ultimately, then he could re-agitate his claims uh, among the Murray Island people despite what Justice Moynihan had concluded about his interests. 
it was in the end a six-one mm. um, decision. Mm. Did you have? Was, well, did, is that how it looked no. after the hearing? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, what, what I often say is that it was when the state of Queensland, Jennifer Jeff Davis, the state of Queensland, stood up and commenced putting their argument that I started to feel some confidence. Uh, I mean, I think they, Ron's arguments were well received, and I mean, as we know, we had a a bench who had a, had a high level of familiarity with these issues. Um, John Tui, of course, had been first Aboriginal Land Commissioner. Uh, Sir Jared Brennan had been counsel for the in for the Northern Land Council when he was a barrister, um, uh, and we we were getting well. It, when the Solicitor General for Queensland commenced to argue that the Murray Islanders were there just at the will of the Queensland government, um, Mary Gordon said to him, well, Mr. Solicitor, on that argument, they could have just been driven into the sea, couldn't they? And Bill Dean said, oh, no, no, they were just trespassers on their own land. Uh, and when we heard them speaking in that way, we felt a high level of confidence that we had persuaded them. I'm not going to try to summarise the 217 pages of the High Court's decision. There were five separate judgments, uh, four of which are quite lengthy, uh, only one of which was a dissent from Justice Dawson. One key thread running through a number of the judgments in favour of the plaintiffs was that there was enough in the cases about the concept of settlement and the associated concept of terra nullius, to find that the common law need not require the extinguishment of native title rights on settlement. And on that basis, the justices in the majority who ruled in favour of the plaintiffs held that a view that native title had not been, in all cases, extinguished by the establishment of the British colony was to be preferred. And it's striking that they use quite a passionate moral tone. They're very learned judgments, but there's also a passionate moral tone to the reasoning. And so, for example, Justice Brennan says that the common law of this country would perpetuate injustice if it were to continue to embrace the enlarged notion of terra nullius and to persist in characterising the indigenous inhabitants of the Australian colonies as people too low in the scale of social organisation to be acknowledged as possessing rights and interests in land. A deep normative quality to that uh, judgment, I think, of Justice Brennan. And Justices Dean and Gordon use yet more striking language when they refer to a national legacy of unutterable shame associated with the dispossession of Australia's Indigenous people. I talked to Greg McIntyre a little about the context of the judgment and about the particular historical circumstances uh, in which the judgment was delivered.
it was a long planned piece of litigation, and yet the the timing is is really interesting. I mean, you have Mabo number one in the bicentennial year, and you know, then just a couple of years later, uh, you have the um, substantive hearing on the merits in the High Court. Was there something about um, the consciousness of those issues at around that time that you think was important? Uh, I, I don't know that we were thinking of the, it being the bicentennial year or. And we we were certainly um, thinking strategically about the makeup of the High Court. Um, and as I said, it was significant that that um, Lionel Murphy um, wasn't there during some of that period uh, and came back during the 1988 period. Um, aside from that, I don't think the timing was uh, particularly historically. Um, thought through. Um, and obviously, it took as long. Some of it took as long as it took. I mean, we didn't anticipate that Justice Moynihan would take a whole twelve months to write his reasons, and we didn't anticipate that the High Court would take another twelve months. Uh, in fact, I rang up Frank Jones, who was in the registrar of the High Court, um, after about after several months when I was aware that Eddie Marbo was. Um, his health was failing uh, to see if he could um, let the judges know uh, and perhaps um, they might take that into consideration working out when they were going to complete their judgments that didn't have sufficient impact for them to for the, to shorten the 12 month period I mean, obviously I've spoken about this many times and, and my the view I have expressed is that I I think we had a unique makeup of the High Court at that time, um, which lent itself to the to the conclusions they arrived at in Marbo, and I'm not so sure that we could achieve that um, with any other makeup of the High Court since, or before, certainly before. It's impossible in thinking about Mabo not to think about what native title means now, more than 25 years on. And I talked to Greg McIntyre, who continues to practice in the area of native title, a little about the way in which the Mabo judgment had been used, uh, a little about the way in which native title has played out and the work which he's now doing as a native title lawyer. One of the things that I noticed uh, about uh, Justice Brennan's judgment was that he uses this um, language about some native title claims being washed away by the tide of history. And I knew that language from the Yorta Yorta native title case, but I hadn't realised that 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 was picking up something of... um, Justice Brennan's mm. judgment, and I wondered mm. what your reflections were, and I'm sure you've offered these many times before, uh, your reflections about uh, how Native Title has panned out and what you think, um, how mm. you think that compares to perhaps what you had hoped for it. Yes, I mean, the, the, we've certainly been through a period of, of High Court justices speaking of the fragility of Native Title and how it's easily extinguished and so forth. Um, I think we're... I'm hopeful that we've actually turned 
uh, another turn back again, um, because Injustice Brennan certainly ex- expressed those views. Um, the I was just reading this afternoon uh, the decision of Justice Rarys in the Yinjibundi case, in which he talked about uh, about the evolution or the the capacity of of traditional law to change over time, um, and he I think adopted the right. Uh, balance uh, in saying, well, of course, um, of course, law over over lengthy periods of time changes to adapt to changed social circumstances, and so long as it, there is a a continuity of the the system, um, change, of course, doesn't mean the abandonment. Of, of law or of the system um, or something which is not able to be recognised by the common law. And I think Justice Brennan's words did allow that. I think, unfortunately, in Yorta Yorta, there was a particular fact situation which um, resulted in the con- conclusions in that case. But properly applied, the, the dicta in of Justice Brennan and of, of the High Court in Yorta Yorta does allow for the the evolution of of traditional law and custom to a to different forms uh, in modern in the modern era. There's still one island in the Torres Strait that's not yet the subject of a determination of native title, just north of Thursday Island, and there's the work's still going on that. And I've got a brief for one of the groups. Um, so occasionally I do things in Queensland and uh, uh, I. Had a, a group in Hunter Valley in New South Wales for a little while. Um, so around the country, pro- predominantly in Western Australia, of course. And the Pilbara, of course, has been a, a quite an active area of of uh, native title cases. Um, a lot of the cases these days are about overlaps between different claimant groups and how to resolve those, and whether we can whether consent determinations can be reached. Um, and there are issues about uh, agreements which have been entered into with mining companies and others um, and how they are managed. So there are all these sort of secondary native title-related issues. Finally, Greg McIntyre reflected a little on the 25th anniversary of the judgment in Mabo Number 2, on the passing of the last of the plaintiffs and on his involvement in this extraordinary case in Australia's history of litigation about Indigenous rights. We lost the last of the plaintiffs this year. Uh, Father Dave Passy was, was alive, just managed to survive through the 25th anniversary celebrations on First Island um, and died a week or week and a half later, so that we, he was the last of the five plaintiffs to survive. And we, I was up on Murray Island um, on the 3rd of June and we did a tour of the, the grave sites. Um, so Quirky, of course, has a, a well-manicured grave there now with the assistance of the Commonwealth Government uh, and the others, the Minister Scullion was up there and promised that they would do similar things to the other plaintiffs' graves as well. My only regret is that I 
whatever I do nowadays doesn't seem to be quite so significant. Uh, you know, it's uh, and it's hard to, to sort of maintain one's relevance to some extent. But uh, yes, it's. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I think it's it's unlikely that I could do anything uh, more significant than that. Thanks again to Greg McIntyre for sharing his wisdom and recollections as he looked back on the Mabo litigation. I hope that you have enjoyed what is necessarily an abbreviated journey through this very long and very complex piece of litigation. It's such an important case and such an interesting case. Uh, Its effects are still very much being felt in Australian public life I'm looking forward to continuing to discuss other interesting cases which have had some sort of impact on our national public conversations. I look forward to doing that with you on the next episode of In That Case. Mm -hmm.